Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, Ray, since it's been so hot out, you've been doing a lot of yard work like myself. How you feeling? I'm hot. I also realize that when you're out there and you're bending around in different positions, you're getting down on your knees. The fact is, I'm feeling it a little bit and I could use some CBD. And I'll tell you what, one CBD is really showing me that they know what to do when it comes to taking care of helping people with pain. Everything from soft gels to oils to gummies and salves and balms. And it's all online at OneCBD.com. I like the fact that they're organically grown. They are third-party lab tested. They are consciously created. It is made in the USA. I personally like the gummies because I have a sweet tooth. It's all 100% organic. It's all made the best way with the best strains. And that's what's important when you're choosing a CBD product. And one of the many great things about their website that he has full disclosure so that you too can read up about it and find out what may work best for you. He personally had to find something that worked for him because of his medical issues. And Ty's story is right on the website. And if you go there, they'll give you 20% off your first order when you use the code BALANCE at OneCBD.com. That's OneCBD. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. Ray Coob, along with my partner in crime, my imbalanced brother, Marcus, in the darkest. You know, Marcus, we talk a lot about the events that changed the course of rock and roll history, or in the case of our podcast, that have changed the course of rock and roll history. That is very true, and the fact that we have covered quite a few with a lot left to cover. It's like thousands of bias switches, right? And any path you take, the crossroads... Uh, if you go to the left, one thing's going to happen in the future. If you go to the right, another thing's going to happen. We found out about this documentary that we're going to be talking about today. We're calling it The Brian Jones Project on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. When we heard about this documentary, we decided to dive in and were granted access to the film early. We have interviewed uh, members of the cast, as it were. And are excited to bring you this look into the man who left the stones and died before he had a chance to do his next thing. The great Brian Jones, one of the members of the 27 Club, which is referenced in the podcast. Yeah, I find it fascinating how the 27 Club keeps coming up. And as we know, it all started with Robert Johnson being the original 27 charter member, so to speak. But it's chance, it's circumstance. It's, it's the fates. And it's life situations and how we handle things. You're absolutely right. So for many of them, 27 happened to be that unlucky number that where their body shut down. And that'll be the focus of the Brian Jones Project as we move forward. Brought to you by our good friends at 1CBD. Check them out at onecbd.com and by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. 
serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. We thank them for their continued support, including today's look at a documentary called Rolling Stone, The Life and Death of Brian Jones, and the film's genesis, Danny Garcia, a man you may know from his many great films that he's produced about his rock and roll heroes, and maybe you know his spaghetti westerns too, (laughs) but he's an interesting character. So we'll be talking with him. We'll also be talking with Prince Stash Klausowski de Rolla, who is one of the original glam dandies in the social scene in London, a bigwig. He comes from European royalty. The guy is a very interesting and unique character who has (laughs) a fascinating perspective on all of this as well as life and many other things because of how he was raised. I enjoyed talking with uh, Stash as well, Prince Stash. Yeah, me too. And we actually learned a lot about Brian Jones and who he was as a person because of Prince Stash's close relationship with Brian Jones. We also talked with Barbara Anna Marion, one of Brian Jones's sixth illegitimate children, and she offers us some interesting perspective as we go through and tell the story of Brian Jones, his life, and his death. We try to shed a little bit of light, as Danny and the others involved in making this film have done, on the real story, dispelling conspiracy theories and confirming some things that we never knew before. And that's what made us want to get together with all these folks and do this special edition of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Not only will you be hearing the clips of these interviews throughout this episode, but you'll be able to check out the entire conversations we had with Danny Prince and Barbara at our website. And there are links to the documentary, photos, and a whole lot more about this whole project. So, listen, the main players in this tale, Marcus, are not in this episode. Let's just make that clear. Brian Jones, those men responsible for his death, the local police who tried to do a proper investigation, and the forces of the UK government of the day and people at Scotland Yard who desperately wanted to discredit rock and roll. You won't be hearing from any of them today on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. We started out talking to Danny Garcia and we asked why he did a movie about Brian Jones. I'm a long life uh, Stones fan um, since I was a kid and I always thought Brian was the most interesting uh, member of the band. What drew you to Brian Jones versus the rest of the members of the well, Rolling Stones? I think I, I think it's look first. Um, you know, it was he was like the most extravagant and most stylish guy in the band. And then, you know, he was the most mysterious guy in the band, you know. And then the fact that he played all these instruments and obviously he died so young. So there's, there's all this aura about him, all this mystery. He was the mysterious, he was the crazy member. Of we wanted to know how this film fit in with his previous punk rock filmmaking documentary past. Danny, you're known for rockumentary films. Uh, you did documentaries, The Rise and Fall of the Clash. Kind of made all of us know who Danny Garcia was, right? You did Looking for Johnny and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and others that were more about the punk rock ethos. How does this Rolling Stones focus fit into what you've been doing and and how you see your work? Well, I mean, I've been covering 
you know, the life and work of my childhood and teenage heroes, really, up until now. I mean, besides Danny Ramon, who was another one of my heroes growing up, you know, I, everybody else I've, I've done, basically, you know, the Pistols with Sidon, the Sad Vacation, the Sidon Nancy story. Then Steve Bader's, then Johnny Thunders, The Clash, mm-hmm. Joe Strong, and uh, Brian Jones, and that's it, really. That's that's how it all connects because they were all they were all childhood and teenage heroes of mine. You know, for me, it's been a trip to be able to put this together, to do this without without major backing or anything. Prince Stash is one of the few people in the film who was really close to Brian Jones and knew him very well and was also with Brian Jones at the time of his 1967 drug bust, the first one. You have a lot of people who speculate endlessly and it's very annoying because uh, they express very forceful opinions, vilifying other people and so on, uh, that it's absolutely shameful because they've read books of writers who've copied one another and propagated erroneous information, which is very, very annoying. And it's pretty well known, Marcus, that after that drug bust, Brian's role in the Rolling Stones became diminished. Yeah, we spoke with Danny about the effects of the drug bust on Brian Jones. It destroyed him. Yeah, he totally destroyed him and got him out of the band because, you know, he became this useless person, you know, taking mandrax and drinking more than he should. Yeah. It was, it was, um, you know, it was a disaster for him, you know, and then the second bust, which was completely, you know, another trumped up, you know, event, and, you know, he was charged for a position again, being completely innocent. You know, the problem is that Brian declared himself guilty on the I first. Know. Yeah. first and that's really according to stash that's what really drove him out of the band really because you know making keith lost all respect for him we also asked him about brian's legal approach he was kind of cornered when he had to plead guilty so why did the rest of the band lose respect for him in that way because they were sort of all of them fighting against the establishment and brian just gave in brian's attitude was they, too strong for us Stash always tells the story that he was staying at Paul McCartney's house and Brian went there and he was really down and very depressed and you know he was he was convinced by his lawyers to declare himself guilty and that's really you know the end of Brian Jones in the band and in life. You know, Stash witnessed and really gave us a first-hand look at the effect of the drug bust on Brian. And it would go on to haunt him with the following year, you know, they busted him on these other trumped-up charges. Yep. Luckily, those were sort of dismissed. He only got a, a fine and the rest of it. But his whole, the scaffolding of his psychic, his morale was completely sabotaged by these events. And he was able to give us a very interesting view and perspective of Brian Jones' role with the Rolling Stones. But what I can tell you about Brian uh, in terms of his being, and that's another nail into the uh, 
uh, coffin of these dreadful uh, stories about Brian, that he was picked upon by his own bandmates and the rest of it. He was the undisputed leader of the band in the studio. I was with him many, many times uh, in uh, 66 and all that in the studio. And you should have seen how he took control and how everybody else was in all of his abilities to direct a session. And Stash's love of Brian really came out when he talked about Brian's contributions to the band. He was really the de facto producer of these sessions. He would say what goes, how this should go. Uh, during uh, Ruby Tuesday, for instance, he recorded that wonderful recorder part. And I went up to him and he said, I'm doing it again. I said, why? And he said, because it's a quarter tone off what I did. Quarter tone off. You know, wow. Nobody could discern those type of things except Brian. Just when you said that, I remember him going, I remembered right away when he went back when he was talking about how much he loved Brian. You could tell how much he loved Brian as a person. So you can only imagine how he felt when he saw his friend Brian going down the wrong road over this, knowing full well that they hadn't had any drugs in their possession. When we go back and look at the drug bust in 67 and how it had an impact on Brian and those decisions he made, Stash was our best source. When Brian and I had been in Cannes, we had gone to Paris, we had flown in, and this happened the very next morning, the phone rang off the hook. The phone rang off the hook and Brian and I took turns to answer the phone. And it was always journalists saying, you're being busted. And I said, what? And sometimes it was people we actually knew from the press. And so we talked to them. They said, well, we heard you being, basically, we thought, wait a minute, have they tried to bust us while we were sleeping? And Brian said, well, shouldn't we look around and see if the, where do we start? You know, we just come back. We knew that we had no drugs there. And where do you start looking if there could be something, you know? And uh, there was an endless attempts. People were ringing the doorbell and so on and so forth. So it was either the press or the police. Then we realized that it was the police trying to gain entry for a while, you know, mm. and saying there was a man who rang the doorbell. I answered the intercom and he said, oh, uh, hello, you you know, uh, my name is uh, Jones, and I'm uh, I'm in the business. He said, <laughs> "What the hell?" You know? Stash told us about how and when he found out that his drug charges had been dropped. He also found out about the bad advice Brian Jones was given by his attorneys. On the day that we were going to court, that they were dismissed, they were dropping all charges against me. I was triumphant. I said, okay, then we've won the case. I ran up to Brian and said, listen, we've won and all that. He said, no, I'm pleading guilty. I said, what are you talking about? And I practically got down on my knees and supplicated Brian not to listen to this appalling advice of his legal team to plead guilty and somehow throw himself on the mercy of these dreadful people. Marcus, one of the people that we talked to was Barbara Anna Marion, and she is one of Brian Jones's daughters. And we got into it a little bit. The documentary really delves into Brian and his women, 
his misbehavior. But I was just fascinated to talk with one of his children who offered some interesting perspectives. I love the fact that we were able to talk to an offspring of Brian Jones who never knew who he was. You are the daughter of Brian Jones, correct? I am. Now, I got to ask, because not everybody knows, and I'm I'm just learning on the fly here. Who is your mom? My mother um, is named Elizabeth, and she was a catalog model in the 1960s. And that's how she met Brian along the way in... It is. How much uh, do do you want me to lay out the whole story or what what, what would you like to know? (laughs) I really want to know when you found out and how you found out that your father was Brian Jones. Okay. It was April of 2002. So it has been 18 years that I've known. I've always known something was really off because of the secrecy surrounding a lot of things, just a lot of things. And so my mother was diagnosed in um, 2000 and 2001, I'm saying uh, probably around Thanksgiving, so November. And she was given about eight weeks to eight months to live. And she was going through chemotherapy. She was truly filled with cancer. So she sat me down on my bed and her bed. And this is the first time she's ever sat me down on her bed. Mm. And she said, you know, there's, there's something I have to tell you because I'm going to pass away and you're going to find out. And I said, okay, well, tell me. And she said that, uh, you know, your your dad is, is not your, your father. And I said, well, you know what, mom? I kind of figured that. Really? I, look, I did. <laughs> I look nothing like any of them. I just, I don't. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. Okay. So who is he? I want to know. Um, I still love my dad. I always love my dad. Who is he? I want to meet him. I want to see if I have siblings. I want this and that and the other thing. And he said, she said, Barbara, well, he passed away when you were only four months old. And I said, okay, well, he must have family around. Tell me what's going on. Uh, just, you know, it's okay with me, mom. It's all right. She said, well, he, he, he was famous. Said, okay. He was a musician. Okay. And she's, I said, what's his name? Well, his name is Brian Jones, and I, I don't know any Brian Jones. <laughs> I didn't know Brian Jones. Um, I said, okay, well, I don't know anyone by that name. Can you tell me a little bit more about this man? Mm-hmm. He said that he was a member of the Rolling Stones, and I said, no, he wasn't. <laughs> did, you think, did you think she was making it up at any point, or maybe that no. was because of her illness? No? No, no, no. My mother, no. Definitely okay. not. Definitely not. No, I understand that. I understand that tone. No, yeah, the conviction. (laughs) We believe you 100%. It was so hard for her to even tell me this. She went deeper into her initial thoughts and her investigation into Brian. So I I was thinking Mick Keith. I didn't know anybody (laughs) by that name. So she said yes. And she told me the story of of how they met and why they met. And my mother and father, my mom and dad were separated at the time my dad was in Germany and she did tell me how they met and I said well can I google this guy she says yeah so I went downstairs from her bedroom I went down to her uh, office and I googled Brian Jones and I looked at the face and I said oh my god Uh. that is what I've been looking at in the mirror that combined with my mother it it was so shocking it was I can't even describe it. When we talked to Danny Garcia about it, 
We discussed how the trip to Morocco and Anita ending up with Keith made bad things worse. Anita was the love of his life. And, and, and she shaped the, she made the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones we know today. Basically, she got Brian and then she got Keith. You know, she was a muse, basically. And, a, you know, a source of inspiration to these people, you know, and stylish and everything. Yeah. Um, so she's really important to the story of the Stones and the 60s. Then Danny went on about meeting and working with Zuzu, who was in the documentary and said that Brian was always nice to her. Zuzu, the actress and singer who actually went out with Brian for like a year and a half or something, just before Anita. I mean, he drove her crazy before driving Anita crazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. but Zuzu, we spoke we spoke to Zuzu a lot you know, I hung out with her in Paris quite a bit she's a lovely lady and she says in the film that Marion Faithful asked her if Brian had hit her like you know allegedly he hit Anita Palomar. and Zuzu said no he, he never did anything wrong to me Garcia also underlined how drugs played into the Anita effect. My belief is that Brian lost the plot with Anita. He lost it. He lost his marbles and and he became violent and erratic and crazy because of all the LSD they were taking, you know, sometimes daily for weeks, you know. That's how crazy Brian was. He was really out there. He was doing a lot of acid. And I mean, Stash always downplays this and says, now, you know, he was okay, he could handle that, you know. But if you read Marion Faithful's book, Brian was a, the worst person to take acid with. Because everything was a downer, and he was scared, and he would get the horrors. And He offered his take on the ill-fated Connery connection planned by Brian. I learned a couple things that I just need to discuss with you. First is, I never knew about the attempted uh, reconciliation at Cannes. And I didn't realize how much of uh, an early force Brian Jones had become and could have become in the world music picture. Um, there's two things that are huge that I take away from your film, Danny. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Stash told us about that that attempt to reconciliate with Anita in, in, in Cannes and... You know, it all went south because she was already in love with Kit. So there was nothing to do. But, you know, they had a good time. They hung out and then Brian realized, okay, that's it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, I mean, Brian was a, a pioneer, you know, not only, you know, playing slide guitar in England, but also he was a pioneer in the world music arena. I mean, he did the first recording of world music, I guess, with, with the Jujuka tribe, you know, in, uh, in Morocco. To give you perspective, folks, Prince Stash and Brian Jones were mates. They hung out together. They had a lot of fun together, and they did a lot of things together. They shared a lot of common ground. They were born in the same year. You can really feel the love that Stash had for Brian when you hear him talking about Brian and their times together. His presence. You know, when we met, we were co-topping the bill at the Paris Olympia during the Easter weekend of 1965. And um, Mick was, uh, you know, the Stones were watching every move we made from the wings, and we were very successful at winning over their own girl 
fans that had come over from Britain. So, you know, Brian makes a sort of uh, tried to be sarcastic with Vince Taylor and said, uh, you've been on, you know, and we were coming out with huge success and all that, coming off the stage. And uh, Vince said, no, I've been rehearsing and just blew right past him. And Brian Jones, on the other hand, came smiling at, towards me and shook hands with me and we became instant friends as Bill Wyman uh, uh, tells in Stone Alone and so you know Brian was a delightful companion the the, the tone the every his vibes were just fabulous he was such a gentle and intelligent and uh, warm-hearted and we never had a crossword and we chased the same girls and all that kind of thing <laughs> and uh, we never ever once quarreled for on any subject or disagreed on anything and you know marcus you can really hear his love for brian when he tells the story of their meeting and their bond when i met brian we we're both born in 1942 and he's a few months old. he was a few months older i was 22 still i would only turn 23 in october he was already 23 but we both had this defiant attitude we're never gonna reach 25 burn the candle at both <laughs> You know, drive fast cars in a crazy manner, uh, get all the girls. You know, that was in Steppenwolf, uh, Hermann Hesse's book. Yeah. There's a wish that you can have. All the girls are yours. That was my old wish, magical <laughs> wish, and that happened. Still and, working uh, on that? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, a parent's relationship to their children is an interesting and sometimes fragile thing. And in talking with Barbara Anna, she talked about getting to know dad and understanding her love of music. And from that point on, I just started studying more and more about him, learning who the man was. I found out a lot of disturbing things. What people were, what people were writing about was disturbing. Did you at any point find that you had unexplained musical abilities I when did. you were a kid? You did. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Not only did, was I the only one with, the, the blue-green eyes and blonde hair, immediately when I was a child, if there was any musical instrument in the room, I'd make a beeline to that. To help with the dolls, to help with the whatever else was in the room, I would go right toward the musical instrument. I started on piano when I was six, but I didn't like lessons. I liked to play by my, on my own. I just did not like the structure of a lesson. And mm -hmm. I didn't like doing what people told me to do when it came to to <laughs> playing a, mu a musical instrument. I said, just leave me alone. So I did the, I went to- Sounds the, a lot um, like Brian Jones, to be honest <laughs> with you, Barbara. I think so, yeah. So my mother got really, really frustrated when she saw that I had talent with the piano, that I was just picking up things. And she tried to put me in a structured environment to teach me this, and I said, hell no. When I was 12 years old, I first got a guitar. When I was 13 years old, this was so strange. I had my eye on a Telecaster, a Fender Telecaster, uh, sunburst. And, the, you know, I had pictures of it all over. And for my 13th birthday, my dad came in with a Telecaster. He dropped it on the floor and he kind of kicked it over to me. He says, you don't deserve that, but here it is. Like, <laughs> Did he know that he oh, wasn't he, your dad? Oh, so he knew. So he And he saw it coming. He saw the music coming out of you. He dropped it on the floor, kicked it over. You don't deserve that. Here's your Telecaster. Here's your, here's your guitar. So I took that guitar and I really 
uh, learned it by myself and I enjoyed it. I played flute, saxophone, clarinet, and then recorder. I later picked up the dulcimer and that happens to be my favorite instrument is the lap dulcimer. And she also had some interesting perspective on the whole picture, including her natural love of music and the man she never knew. It sounds like you're, without ever knowing it, you were just instinctively drawn to instruments the way that he was. I find this very fascinating, Barbara, and thanks for sharing with us here on the podcast. She is Brian Jones's daughter, and we're talking this week about the documentary Rolling Stone, The Life and Death of Brian Jones. What are your thoughts on Brian? I think you'll have to be a little bit more specific. I, okay. There's so much to him. <laughs> All right. You did, when you found out he was your father, you started doing a lot of research to I find did. out who he was. And you read, obviously, some of the stuff about his trailblazing, his hedonism, his excesses, as right. well as some of the you know nicer things about him. How were you able to sort through all of the bullcrap and find the truths as to who he really was. It took me a long time. Uh, what I what I wanted to do most of all was get in, in touch with my family from that side. To be honest, I was more interested in my family than I was in actually Brian Jones at that point. I tried to reach out to my grandparents, his parents. Three times I've tried. I tried to reach out to my aunt. And my aunt has Aunt Barbara, who is actually named after. I can't believe that dude had so many children from so many different women in the 60s. That's just crazy to think about. We talked about this briefly once before, I think, Marcus. He looked to the old bluesmen for inspiration. And we talked about Lead Belly with his kids you know, that he had when he was in his teenage years. And maybe he felt like to be authentic, to be like Lead Belly, would to be to have illegitimate kids. I don't know that he needed to make six of them. <laughs> but they all have their story, and Barbara Anna was so forthcoming with her story about Brian Jones. She dug further into her family and Brian's other children. Then in about 2006, I reached out to siblings, and ah. they, were they were receptive to me. I first tried to get a hold of my, my family, the people who actually knew him, as opposed to knew him personally, as opposed to the people who knew him professionally or as Brian Jones, the Rolling Stone. I was really interested in who Brian Jones was. And she wrapped up our sibling discussion with an assessment of her current relationship with Brian's other kids. Most of my communications, I have lost track with a few of them, but uh, I'm in touch daily through social media with with uh, one of them. I could easily go and, and, and call my siblings. We've kind of grown apart. It's all good. It's all good. Marcus, I'm having a blast, but I'm getting thirsty, dude. I know. We need to take a beer break. Yep. And then when we come back, we go to the somber part of this entire episode, this whole Brian Jones project, Brian's death and the scene of his death. Next on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Well, I know what will quench my thirst and probably yours too, buddy. And that's a nice cold pint from Crooked Eye Brewery right there in the heart of Hatboro. At York and Montgomery, they're easy to find, and when you get there, you're never going to want to leave. Oh, that place is such a great hangout. It's The beer's all really good. The staff is fantastic. Well, the music has returned to Crooked Eye, and people have returned to Crooked Eye, but don't forget to mask up, and that's necessary under state regulations. 
Uh, the guys at the pub are taking care to follow the governor's regulations, and you can keep up with not only what's going on there, but all the music and all the activities going on. And you can check out the online open mic. They've got a page, too. It's all about Crooked Eye on Facebook, and you can find out what you need to know. Their Facebook presence is fantastic, and they definitely do a great job at keeping people in the know as far as what's going on with Crooked Eye because we know people enjoy, like ourselves, enjoy a nice cold pint of beer, especially on a hot day like today. Go in and see what's on the board and have a nice, frosty, delicious summer pint. Pick it up at Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hatboro. Crooked Eye supporting us here on the podcast and serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. July 3rd, 1969. He had recently been canned by the Rolling Stones. Pretty good assessment, don't you think, Marcus? It is a good assessment, and it's pretty sad that that all happened the way it did. The events of that day leading to Brian Jones's death have been in dispute and discussed for a long time. There have been all kinds of theories and conspiracy theories, too, that are kind of wacky, some of them, uh, about how it happened, why it happened. And in this next portion of our Brian Jones project, we're going to look into that and talk to some of the people who've looked at it closely and some of the people who were there. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll Brian Jones project. Director Danny Garcia tells us more about the film and how people can access it. Uh, you show sides of him and the situations that we didn't know about before, like the fact that he was excited to start a new band. Uh, that's why he bought the new house. Uh, there was always this talk about him, uh, you know, putting out a cry for help uh, with a lot of his behavior and stuff. But uh, you show how he was looking towards the future. And you used a lot of stuff, including uh, a lot more of the Be Beggar's Banquet studio film, those sessions uh, that, I, that I've seen before, including something I never saw before, which is the band being notified that Brian had just passed away uh, as they were in the studio working on stuff. It, just cr crazy stuff that's in this film. And you just want to take the time and go find it. Where's a good place for people to look it up and watch it? They can watch, they can stream it on uh, Xbox, Google Play, iTunes, Fandango now. It will be available on Amazon uh, Prime very soon. There's also DVDs. I strongly recommend the hardcore fans to score the DVD because we have an hour plus of extras. There's like 57 minutes of deleted scenes. Then there's a little uh, behind the scenes where we go to Hartfield. You spoke to a lot of people. Were there any people that were close to Brian that weren't the Rolling Stones that did not want to speak about Brian or about the situation because they were scared? I don't think scared is the, is the, is the word because I didn't get in touch with any of the builders. I mean, there's still like a couple of them still alive, apparently. But, you know... Those people, they've, I mean, you know, even Tom Keelock and Frank Thorlett, those people that were at the farm that night, nobody ever spoke the truth, ever. You know, if you read all, you know, all the depositions, everything, they, they all lie. They're all lying, all of them, all right? Because they start with, oh, yeah, it was just four of us that night in the farm, me, Brian. That's wrong, you know, there was a, a, 
not a party, not like a full on you know, 100 people party, but there was like maybe 10, 12 people there. And there's documents, police documents that, that tells you that, you know, there was a few people there hanging out. With that little detail, it just tells you they're not telling the truth. So I wasn't even worried about getting, you know, one of those builders. What I wanted was Scott Jones to tell us what he learned from those police documents. And from those policemen that showed up at the beginning of the investigation and actually were doing their job and were trying to gather information, and that's the most revealing. Shortly after Jones's death, sides were drawn. The local cops, Scotland Yard, and of course the people who ultimately were somehow responsible for Brian Jones's death. Danny tells us about all of that. Was there any information that Scott Jones was not allowed to tell you on air and without giving anything away, how do you know the deathbed confession you mentioned in the movie is legitimate? Well, we don't know, and Frank Thurgood's family denies that ever happening. That's also probably a way for uh, Tom Killer to wash his hands on the whole affair. Mm-hmm. Um, so you cannot trust Tom Killer. You cannot trust anybody who was there that night, you know, period. So, but, but it shows you the vibe. It shows you what's going on. You know, this backstabbing of Tom Killock and Frank Thurgood being best friends since the army days or whatever ended up in this, you know, murder thing with Brian. And then still in the 90s, 25 years later, still going on with this guy dying and this other guy, Tom, coming up with this death. You know, even if it's not true, it just shows you the shadiness of this character. Period. You know, it just tells you this is dodgy people who are dealing with. And Tom Killer was definitely dodgy. We asked Danny about some of the film's breakthroughs on the death of Brian Jones. Well, I mean, besides all of the murder mystery, you know, um, info we've gathered, you know, regarding the night of events, July 2nd, 1969. I mean, that, there's a lot of info. There's, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for the listeners, but there's a lot of stuff that's very surprising. I can tell you that according to this information we gathered via Scott Jones, not related to Brian, is a... Uh, investigative journalist from the UK who was probably the only person who's seen the police file on Brian's death because you know all this stuff is sealed for like 75 years but using the Freedom of Information Act he managed to gather you know a lot of these files from the police Sussex police and he studied them for years and put together what really happened that night. Because you have to remember that the police, when they showed up, the first two cops, they were actually doing their job. They were gathering information. They wanted to solve the case. It's later on when the powers that, you know, that we get involved, they decide to use Brian Jones' death to their advantage. You know, the thing that most comes out of this film may be that that is real because of what Scott Jones uh, was able to look at in the papers that have been otherwise sealed under the Freedom of Information Act. He was able to go and look at the documents that were filed by the local police, and it definitely points 
the dirty business. The number of conspiracy theories that have surrounded the death of Brian Jones is astounding, especially the creativity in some of them, which are obviously just not true. Danny tells us how it became clear that there was a conspiracy and a cover-up. I mean, we knew there was a conspiracy to put, you know, away the Rolling Stones in, in 67 with the, the Redlands arrest bust and then Brian's bust and then in 68 again and blah, blah, blah. And they were doing the same to the Beatles and to Eric Clapton and everybody. They were persecuted. If this was happening today, all of us, we would be up, up in arms, you know. Back then, I mean, you have to remember, LSD was kicking. You know, it was the summer of love. These people were really worried. Stash tells us ruefully why he wasn't with Jones on the day he died. Have you ever had the thought, like, man, if I was there that day, that wouldn't have Yeah, and believe me, that's one of my great regrets, is that in 69, I wasn't in all of six, most of 68, I was in um, in Asia, in India, and Nepal, and the Himalayas, etc. And I came back and had hepatitis, and everybody came to see me in Switzerland uh, from the, the stones and so on. And then after we had this um, New Year's Eve party in Morocco at uh, Borghetti and Talita Getty's palace in Marrakesh. And then uh, the now Lady Getty and myself went to the Canary Islands and got to England. At the time, we had this bet, this seduction bet. I was supposed to meet two of her best friends and seduce them within a short period of time, having never met them before. And so fortunately or unfortunately, in that case for Brian, I was involved in this frivolous winning the bet type of thing instead of making arrangements to go immediately to Brian's new house. Stash also told us about realizing that they'd been set up for the bust in 67. He changed a lot, unfortunately, in the wake of this so it's nine hour bust in 1967. That had a very deleterious effect upon him, especially after our second court appearance, when we found that the police was lying as to the circumstances of the bust. And Brian then grew, he had a tendency to being paranoid, and so his paranoia grew exponentially. Stash also took up refuge at Paul McCartney's house during this time. What? I know. While I was staying with Paul McCartney, who sheltered me during those dark weeks, Brian would come to see me, and he grew increasingly despondent, saying, uh, you know, they're too strong for us, Stash, and, uh, you know, and... Paul McCartney had been drilling into me this defiant stance that, no, you got, even if you were guilty, which you're not, you'd have to say, yeah, but look at me, and look at what you caught us doing, and all this kind of thing. And Paul McCartney advocated total defiance. Marcus, after watching the documentary and doing her own research, Barbara Anna reached some conclusions about the government conspiracy on her own. They absolutely did. I believe that they had well, obviously, um, they were very much focused on getting rid of the Rolling Stones, not just Brian, but they went after Mick and Keith as well. Yeah. And so that was pretty evident in 67 and 68. It seems that their, their efforts were really focused on, I know that uh, Brian had a bust in 67, 
-hmm. And then in May of 68, and that's when my mom was hanging around Brian um, up until that, I believe it was May 20th or May 21st. Um, where where he had that that bust. Um, yes, absolutely. I believe that the establishment were looking to take down the Rolling Stones. We asked Barbara Anna about it again, and she doubled down. They were they were looking to take him out, and I think that added to a lot of uh, Brian's paranoia. Or I don't know if you call it paranoia if it's actually happening. That's right. That's if true. You, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Exactly. So I, I think that it is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, Barbara. In case you haven't figured out, we're not quite all there. We're a little off too. <laughs> hey, Marcus, remember the time that Barbara Anna Marion's husband took her to see Dad's band? I do. She had never. <laughs> she had gone her whole life without seeing the Stones till her husband said, "You gotta go." Have you seen the Rolling Stones live yet? The first time I went to see the Rolling Stones because my husband was a Rolling Stones fan, and I had never seen the Rolling Stones, and he said, "Well, you have to." So in in Quebec, Quebec City, in I like them already. In Quebec City in 2015, he took me to see the Rolling Stones live. So that's the only time I've ever seen the Stones. I'm a big Who fan, uh, Dylan fan, but I actually not really a Rolling Stones fan, although some of their music is really good. And were they good live the night you saw them? Oh, God, no, uh, no. I'm sorry they weren't. Really? No, I did not think so at all. Um, have you ever seen a Who concert? Now, that is a good live band. But she does let us know that she understands the Stones' importance, though. You know what? They they do have a lot of great songs. It seems almost as if they are mechanical and they've become a corporation. They've become a business and a machine and they just do what they do. And there's really no soul left to it. I'm sorry. That's going to piss a lot of people off. This is the Brian Jones Project on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And we are talking about this incredible documentary, the Brian Jones documentary, which we highly recommend. We had a chance to talk to Danny and ask him about his access to the Stones and how it affected the project. You know, we just said, look, this is a film about Brian. This is not a film about the Rolling Stones. We're just going to focus on Brian and what was going around him and with him throughout those years, basically his whole life, you know. The idea was to penetrate the inner circle, which we did, you know, having people like Stash, Prince Stash, you know, Zuzu, or childhood friends, you know, teenage friends like uh, Graham Wright or Richard Hatchell. You know, we got Dick it. Taylor, too. Having people like Dick yeah. Taylor involved who were Dick in Taylor. the band. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Taylor started the band, the Rolling Stones, actually. We got him. We got Phil May, Terry O'Neill, Jared Mankovich. People that worked with the Stones. And you know, we had to ask him about all the conspiracy theories out there. Well, I mean, he was drinking like bottles of vodka right from the start. Of Never good. Definitely. Never, Never good. I actually Never. have a friend I grew up with that drank at that level and ended up uh, paying for it over the long haul because it shut your body down. And from what you talk about in the documentary, it seemed that the mix of pills as well as the heavy drinking, like the bottle of alcohol in the morning, kind of fried his brain, and there was the bipolar aspect of it. And then you also, in the movie, mention childhood trauma without giving anything away. That ties into all of this as far as... 
his mental health and his fragility and vulnerability, which you discuss. Without giving anything away, does this documentary and all of the conspiracy theories and crazy ideas and stories behind the death of Brian Jones? I bloody hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really fun to hear him explain how they got to the truth. So I hope so. I mean, we've tried to to do a serious job looking at documents, police documents, talking to the only person in the UK who's actually seen the, the, the police files and who knows what he's talking about. Because there's all these, a lot of journalists or uh, writers who put together books who allegedly spoke to somebody who was there that night and whatnot and this and the other. All these people are missing out on the big picture, which is how the government used Brian Jones' death. This is the most revealing fact for me, you know, mm-hmm. that this conspiracy against the Stones and against the pop artist was real. It was very, very real. Yep. And that ties in with Jimi Hendrix's death probably as well, because that's a very dodgy death as well. How the governments were using those deaths to put these guys and use them as, as a poster boy against drugs and all. That's to me the most revealing. Barbara Anna discussed how the information in the documentary impacted her personally. And you said and, she was a wild one in the day, which put her in good company. She was right in the in the in the swing of things, so to speak, in the '60s with characters like Brian Jones and his gang and the Rolling Stones. And I don't know about you, but one of the things uh, that I learned and I realized from seeing the documentary was that he had plans for a future, so he wasn't all so completely down and out about you know being left out of the Stones that he had plans for the future, some of which he'd already enacted upon, and that he looks, in hindsight, to have been a major early force in the popularization of world music. And these things are things that, as a... I mean, I I did a nightly feature on the Rolling Stones for years on my uh, radio show here in Philadelphia, so... I constantly would learn stuff, and I learned a lot in this documentary, and it's, it's really cool to see that you and others... With, with familial knowledge of him are uh, more involved and, and being part of this. It's cool. It's very cool. And I, I learned a lot from Danny and Nick. Um, it was really wonderful working with Nick. And Danny mm-hmm. is uh, very talented. They're, they're both real professionals. And uh, I love the documentary. I love what they've done with it. And I um, learned so much. The interviews are fascinating. Our discussion made us wonder if this film settled her father's death. For me, it has. Now, there's always going to be that faction of people who uh, are going to want to bring in Mick and Keith and Alan Klein and so forth and so on. But I really believe that this was hmm, Brian's deal. You know, he hired some really bad people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was t- taken care of by really bad people who took advantage of him. Right. And uh, this he was he was murdered and he he was done in by his builders and the people who were taking care of him. That's what I believe. And the cops uh, just completely bungled. Invariably, the question is raised, Marcus, because we raise it all the time here on the podcast. What if they were here today? What if Jimmy or Janice or Jim Morrison or Brian Jones had lived. It's a fascinating theory to ponder, and it makes for some great discussion. Prince Stash was a friend of Brian Jones, and he was there through a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today. And he signed off with his take of the future that might have been. 
When we worked together on tracks which were kind of a, a proto-rap type of project that I supplied lyrics and vocals and he did the music and we lost those, those tracks have never surfaced again. He specifically said that it was for a Rolling Stones project and not for a solo project. So it's very interesting, you know, that it's not that he wanted to do things on his own until the very last. And uh, he did, as you quite rightly pointed doubt he would have gone a long way into doing very interesting things especially with electronic music i think in the future his daughter barbara told us about her range of emotions regarding brian but yeah i had to sort through a lot of information my opinion of him has changed throughout the years as more people have spoken to me about him the more things that i find out there's a, a period of time where i was really really angry at him after i had met some of my siblings in the way that he treated his children or he didn't treat his children. Treated their mothers wasn't good. Well, you know what? Um, That's true. My mother did not have anything bad to say. She didn't. Was she more in control of her relationship with Brian at that time because of her situation? I think so. I mean, I think it was uh, it was kind of fleeting. It was um, encounters here and there. And she was not uh, beholden my mother was quite she was a wild one and um <laughs> wow man uh well i'm not the only one she didn't get inside of the marriage we'll just put it that way but she uh had she was something else she just she my mother just uh recently passed away she survived her cancer she actually survived her cancer back in 2002 and we asked her marcus about the obvious what if if brian were alive right now what would you say to him oh we'd be great friends definitely definitely um what i've done i'm 51 years old so i have lived (laughs) and throughout my life i have experienced i have uh, very a lot of similarities to to brian in a lot of ways and um i have definitely gained a lot of compassion for him i understand what he went through as a child um i understand now that my son is only my son is 26 years old and I realized how young Brian was when you have a son the same age almost as your father when he died. Wow. He went through a lot in so few years. And I truly believe that my, if he were still alive, we would be great friends. In fact, I think that he would embrace all of his children. We're always left with questions when we ask what if someone had lived or what if this hadn't happened. We always have more questions, not always all the answers that we want, but I think we got some really good answers here on the Brian Jones Project on the podcast. We also got some great stories, Ray, and we learned a few things about Brian Jones that a lot of people didn't know before, and that was really fun. And I think my favorite part of the entire documentary is hearing Prince Stash emotionally talk about his love for Brian Jones and the way it made me feel that I kind of wanted to get to know Brian. The documentary is Rolling Stone, The Life and Death of Brian Jones. Uh, We have a full companion blog with all the full interviews we did with all three of our guests as well as links to the documentary and photos and more on imbalancehistory.com go and check that out and also look for the links on social media through uh, facebook twitter and on instagram and you can always email us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com before we go we have to thank the great danny garcia uh, really did an amazing job on this film and uh, his words really gave us some great perspective. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Danny Garcia. 
not only because of what he did with the Brian Jones Project, but because of his fascinating past with punk rock and his spaghetti western. So we kind of got a little bit of a feel for who he was as well throughout our conversation, and that was really nice too. And hearing the birds in the background was rad. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. <laughs> Thanks to Barbara Anna Marion for her time and energy, and she has a lot of good energy. I think uh, that knowing who her real birth dad is has really helped her have a better life. And uh, we thank her and Prince Stash Klazowski, Dirola. Uh, what a character. Uh, I enjoyed just listening to the man talk. His stories were great. Prince Stash was my favorite part of the entire documentary. A very fascinating individual. Absolutely. And I got to thank my uh, former partner in many crimes in rock and roll history. <laughs> Dookie Fresh himself, DJ Uncle Mike. He's also known as the sheriff in a lot of those spaghetti westerns that Marcus was talking about. My uh, brother Mike Schnapp for setting all this up. And uh, we're setting it off and we're going to shut it down now. It is the Brian. Jones Project. It's the first time we've done something like this on the podcast. I can't wait to do it again. Until we gather again around the warm glow of our podcast unit. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.